Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I'm Mariah Rose. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. If this is your first time joining us, this is a podcast about the 80s, 80s-related stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you're returning, thanks for sticking with us. We know that when we started this year, we don't do seasons. We should have done seasons. That would have been kind of fun, but we never did. This is season 14. Right. Okay. Well, when we started this year, we had mentioned that we were looking at doing some maybe deeper dives into subjects. So not just covering movies, but doing more of the stuff that we really love doing, mm -hmm. which is more um, examining subjects during the 80s that we love, but we didn't really know a whole lot about, we want to learn more about, or in some cases, we knew a ton about and still learned a lot more. Yeah, there's a lot to learn. Also, some of these bigger subjects are really intimidating to tackle because they have so very much information available, so you can't mm -hmm. just scoot by facts. Yeah, and um, why I mention all that is because this episode, if you haven't noticed from reading your your podcast uh, download or whatever you do, stream. Maybe they closed their eyes and just pointed. Maybe. Maybe they just want the experience. Ooh, that's like a podcast roulette. I kind of want to play it. <laughs> I feel like it's that way with a lot of podcasts I listen to. Oh, I feel like I'd end up on a basketball podcast or something and be like, no. Yeah. Uh, well, if you haven't noticed, <laughs> this is a first in Laser Graves history. We are on episode 159, and we are doing our first ever two-part series. This yeah. is big. We've discussed doing two-part series in the past, but we've always managed to kind of whittle them down into one. Mm -hmm. This one, though, we knew because we're both very, very big fans of this huge. band. Yeah, huge fans. And we knew we weren't going to be able to just do a general overview. And also, even though we're an 80s podcast, like we did with... Kate Bush and Weird Al and all these other people, we still like to discuss what they did after the 80s, you know, mm -hmm. beyond just that one decade. And with Depeche Mode that we're going to be discussing today, they really came into their own in the early 90s is when they really exploded. So it's going to be a, a fun two-part series. For those of you who are Depeche Mode fans or fans of 80s synth or whatever, um, new wave music, whatever you want to call it. This is going to be a lot of fun for you. If you are not and you're like, oh man, just listen because we're, we got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. And maybe when you're done, you'll be interested in checking them out and have a greater appreciation for their contribution as very early pioneers into electronic pop music, which was, you know, they were at the forefront of right place, right time. Yeah, for sure. So this is going to be a big one. This first one is going to be covering kind of how they got their start and where they really started to find their sound. And then episode two, we'll launch into kind of the golden era of Depeche Mode, which we we're like dying to get to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't appreciate who they are today without knowing how they got there. Yeah, we're going to leave you on a cliffhanger. Yeah. Kind so. Of. Without further ado, let's get started with part one of the history of Depeche Mode. Alter the images. You know, it's been a great year for new names in the charts. Take orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Oh, yeah, indeed. He's got to agree. Also, a band from Basildon called Depeche Mode. Here they are. Okay, I'm already excited. Me too. <laughs> like, sometimes these episodes are really daunting, and this was extremely daunting. Even just this first episode, I already feel like my brain's fried. Mm -hmm. We didn't do crazy, crazy deep cut, like reading all these books and stuff, but we did watch a lot of interviews, a lot of documentaries. It's hard, you know, with a show like this, as our listeners know, we like to do deep dives, but within the confines of of an hour, you know, yeah. around because you, you know, our show. So we don't really have the ability to go too, too deep with a band that's been around for 40 plus years. Sure. I mean, you could devote an entire podcast to it. Actually, I stumbled upon today a podcast bi-weekly dedicated entirely to The Cure. And I was like, oh boy, what? <laughs> even as my favorite band, that's something I would never listen too to. Too much. Too much. Yeah. But 
Depeche Mode for us, why we chose to do this, Mm -hmm. is it really started because they just recently put out a brand new album, Memento Mori, uh, following on the heels of the parting of their longtime co-founder, Fletch, who we'll get into, R.I.P., the silent hero of Depeche Mode. (laughs) Um, But... They released this album. We've been a fan of every album they've ever released. We've never not liked an album, but universally right now, I think people are kind of caught off guard at how good this album Mm -hmm. is. And I would agree. We, you know, pre-ordered it on vinyl like we always do. And it came in, actually gave it to you for your birthday. Yes. And we listened to it and we were both pretty blown away. And then we were talking about him some more, and then that just occurred to us, like, man, we've never tackled Depeche Mode on the podcast, and it seemed kind of like, uh, you know, sacred ground. Too big. Too big. So whatever. We'll see how this goes, but we're both very excited. Let's talk before we get into their career about why this is justified for Laser Graves. What's your background with Depeche Mode? Because, little disclaimer, when I first met you as a teenager... They were without a doubt your favorite band mm-hmm. and you were obsessed with them. And that's how I really, really got into them. So I, I'd like to know where that started with you. Okay. Well, interestingly, I don't know when I first heard Depeche Mode. I was just suddenly a super fan. <laughs> I, I like came out fully formed, but it was somewhere around 14, I think. So interestingly, at that time, I thought of them as like an old band. Oh, yeah. Because they came from the 80s, even though they were still releasing and and actively making new music and touring and releasing arguably some of their great uh, albums at yeah. that time. For some reason, I just thought it was like a weird throwback thing that I was doing that I was obsessed with, which is, of course, not true. But I was 14 and I loved them. And one of my earliest realizations that I liked them was a high school friend said what do you want to listen to as we were all driving around in his car and I said Depeche Mode and he went oh you in Depress Mode (laughs) and I was like Depress Mode I forgot about that do I always listen to Depress Mode (laughs) yeah Um, what about you do you remember well before we we go on do you remember the first album you ever heard I don't you don't isn't that weird I just like suddenly loved Depeche Mode and there was like no beginning it was like it had always been there interesting I well with Depeche Mode for me it was around that same time I'd say 14 I as you as as everybody who knows me knows I'm obsessed with The Cure they're my favorite band of all time and by the time I was 15 I had my own car and I was driving around with a friend brag <laughs> right <laughs> oh yeah because it was such a great car three-cylinder geo metro that broke down constantly it was called the blue monkey it was called the blue monkey but anyway i had a cassette player in there and i was driving around with a friend and they said we were talking about the cure and other you know Susie and stuff like that and they said well you're a fan of depeche mode right and i said no they said oh well they're kind of if you're like the cure you might like depeche mode so i thought depeche mode was going to be like a, a goth band or something like that and they gave me a violator on cassette. Cool. So I put it in my tape deck. And kind of like you, I was like an instant fan of that album. But it was the only thing that I had heard. I really, really loved it. So I would just let it play. And then, you know, the old tape decks would auto flip and then yeah. play over. And I just would listen to that album over and over. And it was the only one I had. And then probably later in that year, I had another friend who was obsessed with Depeche Mode. And he gave me music for the masses to listen to. Mm. And so those two albums back to back, I was like, okay, this band's really good. They're not like The Cure. They're not like Susie or Bauhaus. So I was a little caught off guard because they were more pop. Mm -hmm. They were more synth. And that wasn't really what I was listening to, but I really liked them. And then it really wasn't until I was 17, I think, or about, I was 16. I was about to turn 17. uh, Barrel of the Gun came out for Mm. Ultra. That was Mm -hmm. their lead single. And I remember sitting in the living room of a friend, and it was the the video premiere of the new Depeche Mode. And I said, oh, Depeche Mode, I like them. I have Violator. And then we watched the video for Barrel of a Gun, and I loved it. And that's when I was like, oh, I think I actually like this band a lot. And then right after I met you, and that, you know, the rest is history, because you gave me all the albums that just changed everything, like, some great reward black celebration songs of faith and devotion and i had never heard those 
And those are arguably like my favorite albums by Depeche Mode. Mm-hmm. And I just listened to them over and over and over because I wanted to get to know you more. And I felt like the more I knew Depeche Mode, the more I was getting to know you. And then that was that. So sorry. Thanks for everybody for indulging us in our, our backstories. What's but... your Depeche Mode story, <laughs> oh, dear listener? But I think that's kind of fun to know, like, you know, what the background is yeah. of people. So all that is to say... We have a very long, <laughs> dedicated relationship to the music of Depeche Mode. Yeah. Yet we've never really gone back and studied kind of how they came to be. We had vague ideas. Yeah. We had like little bits that we had picked up along the way. And I think part of the reason these kind of bands, I'm sure every person has their bands where you have these moments in your life that are sort of transformative and there's music playing there's always music playing and whatever that music is is part of that very happy or very sad or whatever time in your life and it just so happens that for us Depeche Mode was one of the uh, groups we were listening to when we found each other and is part of our relationship so to cover this is like extra special for us yeah and what also is interesting about Depeche Mode is Unlike bands like Susie and the Banshees or Joy Division or something like that that do have a darker sound like Depeche Mode will go on to have, yeah, their image was not nearly as dark. They when I remember seeing Dave Gahan like dance in a live video oh. and I was like, oh, these guys are dorks. And it was really hard <laughs> because I really liked their music, but visually they just did not look like how dark their sound was. Uh-huh. And I think that's what made them really unique is that they truly are a pop band. But they're a very dark pop band. And so that carved out a niche that really wasn't there at the time. Yeah. And what we'll see in episode one of this series is how they went from, like Ministry, starting as just a straight up synth pop band to just getting progressively darker and darker. Yeah. And then eventually finding their voice and becoming who we now know as Depeche Mode. Yeah. And I mean, they were so young when they got started. Actually, let's just jump in, yeah, shall we? Yeah, we begin our Depeche Mode journey in the 1970s. So I know a little, little outside of our boundaries. We're in, we're in the era of punk. <laughs> and we have two friends, two school friends, Andrew Fletcher and Vince Clark. Yes. And they have decided to start a band. Now, I think we just need to say it right here. Um, Depeche Mode has a lot of strengths, mm-hmm. but no member of this band can say that band naming is their strength. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was the name of, of Fletch's and Vince's first band? You, okay, we'll get there. So, <laughs> okay, let's just do it. Okay. No Romance in China. No Romance in China. They were well, teenagers. They, they were teenagers. Yeah, they were kids. So, I mean, I had plenty of bad names as a kid. I mean, they don't get any better at it, but it's fine. Okay. So their first band is No Romance in China. <laughs> I'm sure they thought it was like cool and edgy. I don't know. It was just a cover band though, right? So they like anything it was just, a, just the two of them. Clark was doing the vocals, playing guitar, and he was on bass. Clark was the more experienced of them because he'd actually been in a band before. Do you remember that though? Like um, in the... You know, teen years when you're in bands and there's that one person who's like really been in like four bands before or like two bands yeah but because they've been in two bands they're the guy who's been in all the bands and he played like four shows yeah and they had two songs <laughs> yeah so totally. he's he's more more advanced <laughs> meanwhile uh their friend martin gore who will become a key member of depeche mode was in a band called are you ready for this oh one? yeah i don't know this one norman and the worms Norman and the Worms. Norman, yes, and the Worms. So we have some young lads, and I say lads because they're British, the doy. So we have some young lads. They're in bands, and like kids do, they're kind of milling about in the band scene. You and I both did it. I'm guessing many of our listeners did. They're just kind of trying things on, listening to music, sharing music, trying out like different band combos and vibes, names, whatever. Well, they had similar interests. Like, Martin, in that one of the documentaries we were listening to, said that he was basically brought in because he was one of the only kids with a synthesizer. <laughs> yeah. And so, because Vince had a background in music, you know, he yeah. studied piano and violin yeah, and all he that. Did. But he was really into what was happening at the time, uh, orchestral mo- mm-hmm. maneuvers in the dark. Um, Human League was a big one. Mm-hmm. So I think 
as people know, Vince was really the one with the vision of what he wanted to do. And I think he was really bringing other kids together to say, let's let's form our own electronic band because this is what's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think he was probably the more mm, fully formed as a musician or at least with a vision. Yeah. So he he's bringing his buds in. They all know each other. And um, so these three knew each other, but they were also in school with some other names. Oh, really? Yes. The first is Allison Moyette. Oh, I didn't know that they went to school together. Yeah. Oh, that explains so why. She okay. and Clark would later go on to form Yaz Yazoo. Right. They also had another schoolmate whom I thought you might find interesting. Who? And it leads me to this week's fun fact. Oh, early. <laughs> Their other schoolmate was none other than Perry Bamonte. Really? Yes. So he would go on to join the cure. Yeah. He'd been like helping them and I he didn't went know on. That. Yep. Oh wow. Isn't it a small, yeah, weird very world? Small. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So he would go on to join the cure from nineteen ninety to two thousand five. But he's actually back with the band, and we will see him in like a week and a half because we're going to go see the yeah, Cure. Yeah, we're about to go see The Cure again. Yeah. We're like, I think this will be my eighth time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Clark was on vocals at this time. Uh, he started working with the three of them, but it wasn't really his thing to be the front man. He liked to be kind of the, I, like the puppet master is how I kind of think of him. Yeah, every, I saw, I, I went and listened to a few interviews with just Vince Clark to just mm-hmm. get a sense of what he was like and his background and stuff like that. And he was very honest and upfront about his personality and how it's difficult to be with him in a studio because he has a vision and he's not very compromising. Mm. And I think what he was seeing early on was, I know what I want this band to be and it's not me in front. And so I, I do think this is already an indicator that, that Vince had... He knew the steps that needed to be taken if this was going to actually succeed. And stepping down, even though he was the leader of the band and taking a background kind of stance Mm -hmm. was a really smart move because he knew it would benefit the band overall. Yeah, he doesn't have the dynamic personality uh, needed to be a front man. (laughs) Especially compared to who they're about to bring in. So the story goes that Clark had actually heard Dave Gahan at uh, covering a David Bowie song. Heroes. Oh, that's not a surprise. They, uh, Martin Gore and Dave Gahan were both big Bowie and Stooges yeah. fans and all that. So yeah. So he sees him and he's like, "Will you come and be the lead?" And also in some of the interviews and stuff we watched, they kept referring to him as being like super stylish. And I was like, I know. "What's his backstory? Was he like in fashion or whatever?" Two things. Go watch some early videos of Depeche Mode. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, he's definitely got some, like, strong Rick Astley vibes. Um, oh, yeah. Early on, it is The so high pants. Awkward. I mean, it was the time, so there, there is that. But also, he was, a, like, a very young man. So Yeah, he was, like, 16 at this time. 16, 17. And you know what makes me laugh when they say, like, we brought in Dave because he was the stylish guy. Yeah. I think of... You know those 16-year-olds that wear fedoras and oversized, like their dad's <laughs> dress coats? That's what I imagine. Yeah. Because he was the whole, he was caught up in the whole new romantic scene that was emerging. You know, yeah. everybody knows that whole era of of music in, in British history. But Dave was definitely part of that. He was very fashionable. And, but his idea of fashion reminds me of... You know in Weird Science when they're going to go out to the club for the night and she <laughs> <laughs> gives them a makeover? Yeah. That's kind of like, I imagine Dave walking out with an oversized suit jacket on and yeah. be like, whoa, this dude's got fashion. I see that. And I also think there is probably uh, an element that we couldn't see at the time. Just his personality, I think, is probably what drew them in. And reading a little bit on his early life story is kind of interesting. So most, well, all of them came from just like working class backgrounds. Yeah, very much so. Neither poor nor wealthy but interestingly both Dave and Martin came from families whose their mother had remarried 
when they were very young and presented the stepfather as though they were the real father, only to discover later in life that their stepfathers were not their real fathers and their real fathers were different men. (laughs) That would be shocking. Yeah, shocking. But I, I think that the really interesting thing for me was that Dave was wild. I kind of thought he was just uh, sort of preppy, but he was not. He was like stealing cars and stuff. Really? Yeah, well, and getting he's into like the most clean cut. Him and Fletch both they look very clean cut, especially yeah. early on. And when you watch early interviews with Fletch too, you can tell there's something behind all of them. Like they came from working class families and and just I think they did get into to mischief. I think he more than anybody from what I've been able to find, he was doing he was very naughty. He got into a lot of trouble. So well, he did have the personality. It wasn't there at first. I was interested when I heard that uh, the earliest shows of when they actually started performing together, Dave had no confidence and he would just stand there totally still in front of the microphone hmm. and not. Uh, Fletch said that he did what Dave liked to call uh, lighting design. Oh. Which just meant putting like a spotlight down below him and having it shine up like Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. Oh, okay. And it would just illuminate his face, but he wouldn't move. He was totally still and wouldn't move at all, which is hilarious because... He's very active. By the time they they get going here in just a second, it's like somebody poured ants down his pants and he's <laughs> wiggling and jiving and pelvic thrusting all over the stage. He's voted number 27 on like all-time top frontman. Well, he's definitely a charismatic frontman, but it didn't start out. I, yeah. he, he had to find his voice. He was a little teenager. Yeah. So, okay, they're a band. Fashion aside, uh, it was actually a really important time in music. And this these kids had pretty sweeping influences, including cool bands like Susie and the Banshees, Prince, Talking Heads. The Cure. Sparks. Vince said we wanted to be the cure. Like yeah. that's interesting. So they they did like good music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and Kraftwerk was another. They mm. they both loved, or all of them loved Kraftwerk. Yeah, and so they're taking in all of these like musical stylistic influences, developing a stage presence over time and practice. Very very importantly, though, they were working with synthesizers because they were affordable and it came at exactly the right time in musical history. So the thing about synthesizers is they are, of course, like I said, affordable, but they're also really versatile. So they're able to make new sounds and innovate because it's new, newer technology. And they're, they're able to do things that nobody had done before. And it allows them to experiment with sound and composition in a way that was would become like the backbone of the band. It's interesting that you say that because I was listening to an interview with Gary Newman, who I just saw in concert. Oh. He was so good. But anyway, I was listening to an interview with him. Mm-hmm on a Depeche Mode documentary. And he was talking about being on the ground level of synths in pop music versus synths just, you know, like Brian Eno playing a synth with Roxy Music was mm-hmm. not the same as Gary Newman and Depeche Mode having a synth band made of only synths. Yes. So he was talking about it. And he said what was really exciting about this time of all these bands, Human League and, and all them, were basically every sound you created had not been created. And they all knew that they were breaking new ground in music. So it was extremely exciting. And I think Depeche Mode uh, talks about that early on, that they knew going this route was risky, but it also meant that they were able to do something that had never been done before. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I, I just think back at it these moments in history of punk and glam and everything, when you know you're on the ground level of something that's new and exciting, it just must be really thrilling because we don't really yeah. get much of that anymore. Not in the same way. Well, speaking of sound and the way they compose it being their thing. Oh, what else nice, do you know clever. <laughs> they were at this point, not about romance in China. They were calling themselves composition and sound. Okay, that's not any better. You can tell they're trying to be like um, uh, OMD, though. Yeah. So eventually they kind of picked up on the fact that this was a stinker of a name. They didn't love it. And it was Dave, remember, the stylish one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Who suggested a very fancy French name. Yeah, Uh, the name of a magazine. Yes, it was based on a magazine, Depeche Mode, which means like 
hurried fashion. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's any better. And it's hilarious that they kept that name. You know what's weird? Everybody knows, most people that are Depeche Mode fans know what that name means, Mm -hmm. but nobody seems to mind it. For some reason, it's like they just claimed it and moved on because when you listen to Depeche Mode in the 90s, I don't think, oh, they're called this. I just think, oh, yeah, they're Depeche Mode. Well, look, it sounds fancy. It does. Because it's French. It sounds cool because it's French, but really it's silly. We know it. They didn't get any better at naming. They just learned to do it in a different language. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty smart. (laughs) So we just have to accept the fact they aren't good namers. The new name debuted though in 1980. So within Laser Grave's parameters, it was that same year that they made their very first recorded song photographic for a sampler album. The song would later be re-recorded and released on their first album. So this is when they were shopping around their demo, right? Mm-hmm. And as uh, the documentary that we were watching, they were getting the door slammed left and right. Yeah. So they were taking their demo into record labels. Uh, they had sort of a direct approach that's pretty funny. So they, instead of sending their demo in like any normal person, they were going like door to door label shopping. That's very kind of a punk mentality too, because... When we were watching a lot of documentaries on the punk movement a yeah. while back, and they were doing the same exact thing. They were basically just walking right into the record companies and being like, here's my demo. You need to listen to it right now. Yeah, and in one of the interviews, they were saying, like, they would, if they'd say, leave it, they'd say, this is our only copy. So <laughs> they were basically just saying, um, you have to listen to it now, because we know if we leave it, you won't listen to it. It'll just you know, be one in a sea of demos. So it's kind of smart for teenagers and it, it, it's working. And it actually sounds like the band was receiving interest from labels pretty much straight away. I mean, they kind of talk about like having doors slammed in their face, but they moved pretty fast from formation to record deal in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there are bands that struggle forever. You know, thinking about it though, even with the very first couple tracks that they recorded, I could see why, because synth in a large part in the kind of public sphere was more soundscapey and it Mm -hmm. didn't have this pop um, polish to it that Depeche Mode had. So there weren't, as Gary Newman had talked about in his interview too, at that time, really, when I keep bringing up things like Human League, there were only a couple bands. Yeah. And he said, not only that, it was like one band per city in England had Mm -hmm. the electronic band. So... The fact that they not only could play these synthesizers, but they had a pop mentality. And Dave, even though his voice would be, go on to become much better, it was already pretty good out of the gate. Yeah. So I, I do think it was probably a, not a, a hard call for a record company to say these kids have something. Yeah. It's just unusual because it's synth-based. Yeah. And they in the one of the documentaries we watched, they were talking like, uh, you know, they had all these offers on the table. But really what happened was they eventually collect- connected with Daniel Miller, who was relatively inexperienced as a producer at the time. He was just starting out his own label, a little thing called Mute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mute Records. And the band just sort of inherently trusted him. They're, they just saw something in him, trusted him. And then together... They recorded the single Dreaming of Me in late 1980 to be released in early 81. And the first single actually went to number 57 on the UK charts. This is their first single. And they're all still really, really young. I think yeah. most of them are teenagers. Maybe Vince is 20 by now or they're something like that. They're super young. They're really young. Yeah, their second single, New Life, went all the way to number 11. So if you think about bands you know or bands you have heard this is unbelievable two singles and they're already at number 11 in their yeah, country yeah they took off really fast and i could see why both those singles are incredibly catchy yeah and this number 11 in the uk charts earned them a special offer to be on top of the pops which oh as we know from our podcast yeah. and other british artists we've covered this is the golden ticket. This is Willy Wonka's ticket. This was an insane opportunity for our lads. <laughs> I remember a single called Dreaming of Me from a band called Depeche Mode. And then they come back with something so strong, it's a smash hit. This is Depeche Mode. Right behind me, you will see. New life. The 
their success really continued to build and Just Can't Get Enough was their first top 10 hit. So they're just like shooting to the top. Yeah, I will say though, just for context, they were shooting to the top with a certain demographic and a certain type of people that liked them. But they had a lot of haters out there. Oh, yeah. And Depeche Mode bore the brunt of it because they openly were on stage set up like a band, but mm-hmm. only with synths in front of them. Yeah. And that was so incredibly unusual because a lot of times, even then, bands would have a couple synths, but still a drum set and a guitarist or something like that. No. This was literally only synthesizers. And it was so incredibly unusual that you had all these hardcore rock and roll gatekeepers that feared that this was going to be the death of rock and roll that they could not stand the idea of these kids with only synthesizers making music and so Depeche Mode was at the forefront of really taking the brunt of a lot of hate in the press who did not get where they were going and did not see it as even real music they just said this isn't real and you know (laughs) this isn't isn't real music yeah and I think that's interesting because I could see how with some people that could have beat you down, but they found an audience anyway. And that's what's really interesting is that there was this other whole side of music lovers who said, no, what they're doing is new and fresh and we want more of it. Yeah. And that's what really helped spark synth pop getting its you know ground going is you needed a couple bands, not just one, but you needed a few to turn it into a movement. Yeah, it's true. So... They're, they're having success. Speak and Spell comes out. So they have their first album released. But like you said, there is this problem. They're also being kind of marketed as like pop, not boy band, but they're like being marketed towards teens as a little bit heartthrobby. So well, that's, especially because of Dave. Well, I guess all of them kind of have yeah, that look. You yeah, know? they're. I mean, go look at some of their early press. You'll see. And you'll you'll see that they were struggling to find their footing. And, of course, they have to go on tour to promote their album. And things are not, like, they are successful, no doubt. But they're on really unstable footing at this point because they've had this successful release. We know how sophomore albums come. And they're touring and they're, I think, probably not so happy with the way they're being marketed. But they just keep saying yes to opportunities because that's what they're being advised to because they've had no, you know, no real taste of fame at this point. So they are just like, this is what we do. This is what we do. uh, Interesting, too. They did say that quite a few times that one of the regrets early on was that they were so eager for any press. Mm-hmm. And this is probably common with most young artists. Sure. They said yes to anything and everything. Oh. Every every TV performance. And I think the one that took the cake for us that uh, we both laughed out loud is, and it just was nonchalantly put in as though we were supposed to accept this. They were on some TV program performing, but all of them are in a barn holding chickens yeah and when they said we shouldn't have we should have said no to some things i know exactly what they're talking it was about the chickens. it was so weird and awkward it was weird but i kind of loved it yeah it was great so this whole thing was maybe becoming a bit too much for vince clark yeah vince we're gonna spend a second on him because what happened is highly unusual in the, in the world of music mm-hmm. he almost immediately was getting burnt out. I I tried to piece it together because it's always been a little cryptic and vague as to why this happened. But what I could put together through his own conversations was he was getting really burnt out on touring, first off. Sure. Second, the direction of the band was headed in a way that he didn't feel like he really wanted to go. There was a lot of little infighting because, as I said, he had a strong personality and so did some others. So they were butting heads a lot on tour. Things were just really unpleasant for him. But he also admitted that he liked doing everything himself. Mm -hmm. And with the way synths were set up, he really didn't need to have a bunch of people to do all this. So he had a vision. And he, out of nowhere, this was a pretty big shock to everybody involved, um, in November of 1981, announced that he was leaving the band. Wow. So there's a few things to note here of why this is so important. One, 
This is less than a month after Speak and Spell just was released, their debut oh album. Oh my gosh, you're right. I didn't even think about it. Just came out it. in October, and by November, he said, I'm out. <laughs> so that was crazy. But more crazy is Vince Clark was Depeche Mode's primary songwriter. Yeah. Martin wrote two songs on the first album, but they were kind of just side songs. They weren't the main songs. Vince was writing Depeche Mode's music, and everybody in the press knew it, and they really you know, focused on that. So as soon as he announced he was leaving, the press jumped on it right away. They sure. was like, there's no way Depeche Mode's going to go on because it, it's basically like saying, it's similar to when a lead singer quits, yeah. except he wasn't the lead singer, but he held that much importance because he was the songwriter. So they're like, there's no way that he can be replaced. There's no way that they'll be able to write. None of these guys know what they're doing anyway. It was all Vince Clark. That was the, the press's perception okay of course Depeche Mode was like hell no we're we're going on now we know what we want we want to start changing our sound a little our image a little and we'll do this without him like let him go on his own way as you mentioned he joined up briefly with former classmate as you Mm -hmm. (laughs) talked about Allison and they formed Yaz Yazoo but they got I think uh, sued from a American band that had that same name that's why it went to Yaz but mm-hmm. they went on to have a little career, short-lived career. Oh, and, I love and, Yaz. Yeah, Yaz is great. And then we'll talk about what he did later after that, because he was not hurting for for music <laughs> after Yaz. Uh-huh. He's done just fine for himself. But he left, and they all sat around deciding, what are we going to do next? And they wanted to waste no time. So Martin Gore was kind of unanimously elected to become the primary songwriter because he had already written a couple songs and he had been writing songs since he was a teen. So he yeah. said, oh, I've got a few songs already set up. I'll I'll take it over. So Martin stepped up and any fan of Depeche Mode knows this was a pivotal moment yeah. in the band's history because this would forever change the direction of, of every one of their lives Mm -hmm. because Martin Gore from this point on was the songwriter for Depeche Mode. And, you know, that's kind of the history speaks for itself there. He stepped up and then they also needed to replace Vince because he was gone and they need a fourth member to play all these parts live. Mm -hmm. So they weren't really looking for a new person to come in and write songs. Martin was going to do that, but they needed somebody to come in to basically be like a, like a touring musician. They held some auditions. They put out an ad in Melody Maker magazine. And somebody who was reading it said, I think I know who that is because all the press was talking about this band that just lost their songwriter. And he auditioned. He got another audition. And very shortly, they hired Alan Wilder, who was a guy from West London. He was a little older, which was a big deal, because in their ad, they specifically said 21 and under, and I think he was 22. Oh, snap. But the big thing was he was a very classically trained musician, and not just sort of. He's an incredibly gifted musician, and they all knew it when they got him. They were like, it's really funny to hear them talk about Alan when he was first hired. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. This guy's an actual musician. Yeah, because they had no real experience. Not they just really. somehow gotten famous. Yeah. So Alan's brought into the fold, but keep in mind early on, he's just basically a guy to help play the parts when they're touring. And that's important because they decide to launch into their follow-up album. Their sophomore album is going to come out. And Alan is told specifically, you're not going to be included in this album because the three guys, Fletch and Martin and Dave, feel like they need to prove it to everybody that they can do it without Vince because all the press is saying they can't. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately for Alan, he's left out. But they go ahead and they record their follow-up album to Speak and Spell, A Broken Frame, which comes out September 27th, 1982. Most notably, I would say from this is that cover. Yeah. Incredible. It's been actually been voted but as like one of the greatest color photos of all time. Whoa. I was reading all kinds of crazy things about this, but it was taken by a very eccentric and quirky photographer, Brian Griffin, who has a, an incredible career. Yeah. And he did a lot of their early album covers, but he did this cover for Broken Frame, which is this kind of 
kind of Russian. Yeah, it's like a peasant woman. Yeah, out in a field. It is so gorgeous. I thought it for years. I thought it was a painting, but it's not. It's a color no. photograph. It was just. And in a documentary we watched, he talked about capturing that image and how everything just kind of the stars aligned. And he knew he had just taken like the greatest photo of his yeah, career. Yeah, the rich like tonality of the color is yeah. is something. So covers out there. This album comes out. A lot's writing on this because they have to prove themselves now that their songwriter's gone. And it's kind of a lukewarm reaction. Hmm. It's not really well received, but it does okay. They had some great singles on there. See You, The Meaning of Love, Leave in Silence. So it was pretty good. You say each one and I'm hearing yeah, you Yeah, I know it head. too. Martin could write a hook for sure. He had a pop mentality. But what his criticism of it looking back is, he said it's his least favorite album because a lot of these songs he wrote when he was a kid. And yeah. They weren't really where they were at, but they needed to write an album. He'd been drawing on like old things he had written to make this, which makes sense. So it came out, it did okay, but they also recognized that Alan needed to be involved Mm -hmm. because he had a lot to offer. So immediately following a broken frame, Alan recorded his first song with Depeche Mode, and that was the non-album single, uh, Get the Balance Right. Oh, man. And Get the Balance Right actually bizarrely became a huge underground hit in america in the clubs especially in detroit what yeah i was listening to this interview with this dj who was black and said we didn't know they were white (laughs) and we just thought they had a cool groove Interesting. and they played that song constantly in clubs in detroit not knowing who this band was oh. at all. And Depeche Mode was like, what is going on? And even Dave said, I don't get why they like that song so much, but something about it resonated with the American audience. Mm. And they started to build now an American kind of cult following, which they had no clue was really gaining a lot of steam. It took time, but yeah, It took some time, but once it once it built, they had a pretty loyal following over there. But that was their second album. That was how they were officially now their own thing, independent from Vince Clark. Okay. So this was going to be Depeche Mode going forward. And also in something, I don't know, they had talked about how they paid Alan like uh, <laughs> like a little bit just for like the first two years. So he wasn't even a real member of the band. They just had been paying him like a stipend or whatever. <laughs> yeah, he finally asked them. He was like, am I even a member of this band? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course you are. And then Dave said, oh, I guess we better start paying him. Yeah. So they recognize now that he had something to contribute. He a really could, And obviously he could bring a lot. But Alan, when you hear him talk, he also is very self-aware. And he said it's not really his place to be the songwriter. That's not his strength. He said Martin had that covered. He could clearly write a song. Alan, being the classical musician, his strength, and was until the time he left the band years later, was to be more of the arranger. So Martin would come up with a demo and then present it. And then Alan would really flesh it out and make it into something much more complicated than what had been on Speak and Spell, these mm-hmm. really simple, very Teenager-y. minimal teenager songs. Now they were starting to become more developed because that was that was Alan's real strength. Yeah. So he was now officially the fourth member of Depeche Mode and Get Balance Right comes out. So they're, they're doing okay for themselves. It's now 1983. So we're getting into it now. Depeche Mode is really becoming Depeche Mode. Mm-hmm. They are all ready to go in a new direction. They're Mm -hmm. recognizing that this whole synth-pop teen thing is not for them. They're maturing. They're growing up. Of course. They've now seen the world. They they want to do new things. This is when another move happens in their careers that has a, a profound change on their sound from here on out. And that is that Daniel Miller, you know, the owner of Mute Records, Mm -hmm. who is still to this day, like involved, a huge friend of theirs and was basically like another member of the band. He believed in them and he helped them out. He brought in a producer, Gareth Jones, to help out Depeche Mode. Gareth Jones was a big deal already and he would go on to become an even bigger deal. But this is really important Depeche Mode in the Depeche Mode timeline because... Up until this point, producers were like, sure, yeah, just play that and I'll record it. 
Gareth was not a fan of Depeche Mode, and he admitted that. He said, <laughs> I don't like their sound. They're real poppy. They're just not what he was into. He yeah. was living in Berlin. He was into the whole underground electronic scene. Of course. So everything he was listening to was way cooler. And he said, <laughs> not my thing, however... I, I get that these guys are very serious. They're sincere. They have a good work ethic and they have potential. I want to come in. But if I am, I want to like, harden their sound. I want to give them a tougher image, a stronger sound and kind of move away from the teeny bop synth stuff. Mm-hmm. And this was a very good move because huge. Gareth is the one who says, OK, not only are we going to kind of strengthen your sound a little, we're going to do these weird techniques he reminds me, there's always these producers when you go through history, but you get these producers that get these wild ideas and they say, let's try this, let's try that. And he was very much about experimenting with sounds and because it was synths and he had more experience than anybody in the room with synthesizers, he thought, well, let's record it with the synth going direct in, but also record it live playing into empty rooms and then we'll double that and what that does is the acoustics gives it this much bigger yeah liver heavier sound but the more important thing is he introduced depeche mode to sampling and field recordings what? which was big it meant going out banging you know on a metal plate and recording it and then sequencing that recording into your music and giving it this raw sound that was not found in other synthesizers. And so in 1983, they set out to start recording their third album, which would be called Construction Time Again. Mm -hmm. And when you listen to it, this is really the first beginnings of real Depeche Mode sound. And it's got that industrial quality. Yeah. What blew me away about Gareth is that he not only introduced Depeche Mode to sampling, he also introduced this. I did not know this until two days ago. He also introduced industrial sampling to Blitz's German outfit. Are you ready for it? I've been uh, taking German lessons. Yeah, you have. So <laughs> I'm going to take a crack at it. Einsturzende Neubauten. Whoa. I'm going with it. Seamless. It's as close as I can come. Perfect. <laughs> I, since I was a teenager, just say Neubauten because I can never pronounce the first one. I listened to interviews with Blitza. I listened to interviews with reporters and they all kind of had a different version. I'm going with that. Anyway, anybody who knows anything about industrial music knows them. And the fact that Gareth was the one who said, oh, hey, you should record banging on buildings and then put it in your music. It just blows my mind. He also went on to work with tons of amazing bands. Uh, Wire, Tuxedo Moon, Eurasia. He was responsible for Interpol's first album, Turn what? on the Bright Lights, which was by far their their best album. Saw them in concert, too. <laughs> we saw them for that tour, remember, in Seattle? Yeah. They had just released their first album, and they were so nervous and fresh, and they were fumbling around with their pedals and... Then the second time we saw Interpol was a couple years later, they opened for The Cure and they had techs and they had people running everything and it, it was a totally different band. Mm-hmm. But I'll never forget when we first saw them and they were just, they felt like a club band. Yeah, they were a club band. Okay, anyway. Oh, yeah. Back to Gareth. Where so bringing him in for construction time again was a major shift in the sound of Depeche Mode. Oh, sorry. Pause. I was like, why do I feel like Gareth is David Bowie's name? I was thinking Jareth. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. That comes out on August 22nd, 1983. So they're really pumping out an album a year. Yikes. Consistently. And that has Everything Counts on it. And Everything Counts is a pretty big hit. But here we have at the top of the pop studio tonight, the number 10 record by Depeche Mode. Everything Counts. And now they are back in and they have proven themselves. Also, Alan uh, was able to write a couple songs on there, too. So they're they're now a full-fledged band of four. And this is Depeche Mode. This is a very exciting time because when you listen to Construction Time again, it has all the makings of Depeche Mode. Yeah, you feel like you've turned a corner. Yeah, you know where they're headed now. Mm -hmm. But now... 
they're really going to launch into what would become their most prolific era and last for a good decade. I don't know. It's still going. It's still going. What are they even doing? But I will credit, you know, before we go on, I will say Construction Time again is is really, I think, the, the biggest personal turning point in Depeche Mode because Martin was no longer writing songs that he had already written as a kid. He was mm-hmm. writing brand new songs. Alan was now in the fold of helping out. And now they've got producers and everything behind them that get their sound, their image is becoming cooler. As Gareth said, they're now the cool kids again. They're not like the teeny yeah. boppers. They actually, Construction Time Again, although it's not an industrial album, no. when you listen to songs like Pipeline, it's absolutely industrial. This is putting Depeche Mode in the thick of kind of breaking ground mm-hmm. in a style of music that is unfolding and they're right there at the forefront. So yeah. they are now primed to be watched by everybody around them. Like they're not now just putting out simple pop songs. Right. They're actually like revolutionizing electronic music. Yeah, I agree. I think they're really coming into their own at this point too. Like taking control of their identity and their sound and moving forward. We see them just building upon this transitional phase. And I think that's so important. But also, just to reiterate, the band was really, at this point, only successful in the UK and to some degree throughout Europe and Australia. Germany. Germany loved them. I I say Europe. So Germany is included there. Of course, this is a huge accomplishment, but... They knew that there were bigger markets to tap. And things really began to change with the release of People Are People in 1984. This song was very successful throughout Europe. But they saw their first number one hit in, like you guessed it, West Germany. And remember, this is when we still had... Yeah, Berlin Wall still up, yeah. Additionally, the song reached number 20 in Canada and 13 in the U.S., which was their first time on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, So that was a really big deal for them. The band had signed with Sire at this point, too. So Sire being their North American label. Uh, They also released a compilation that had songs from A Broken Frame and Construction Time Again, as well as some like B-sides to kind of spice it up. The release was actually a success, and the band was genuinely surprised by their North American reception, (laughs) Uh, specifically with the tour. They'd really not anticipated much of anything because nothing had really happened for them up till this point, and they were really thrilled to see people showing up at the shows along their tour dates, like, shocked. Yeah, I think Depeche Mode was now officially, you know, on the map. They weren't just kind of in a small group that knew about them. They were now like a major act. They were, but they weren't their sales in the US weren't really translating yet. Yeah. So they were getting there. The band had been carrying on, building their brand, so to speak. Uh, but then something amazing happened in September of nineteen eighty four. They oh, released yeah. some great reward. Some Great Reward. This is, we were talking about construction time again, but Some Great Reward is the true, I would say, first, like, full-fledged Depeche Mode album that if you are not a fan or you've never heard Depeche Mode, if you start with Some Great Reward and work your way up, it's consistent. You just, that's the sound of Depeche Mode. And it's, there's so many things happening in this album. Yeah. It's incredible. It's true. This album was somewhat different from their previous work in that they were dealing with ideas that would become pretty much their bread and butter from this point forward. Uh, They had tried their hand at making more political music, like political commentary, (laughs) social themes, things like that. But it was when they went inward the Depeche Mode really began to grow and to grow on people we get a look at their inner lives and it's something that's really relatable and that I think is what kind of brought them into the Depeche Mode that we know and love now would you agree yeah and also yeah I would say the songwriting changed it got more complex it got more personal for sure Uh, Martin stepping up more to sing yes somebody is on that album it's really incredible, but also the production quality. So um, Gareth's still with them, and he brings them to Germany, to Berlin, mm-hmm. to record because 
all good bands go to Germany, right? Gareth was working in Hans's studio, which is where Bowie recorded Low. Mm-hmm. It's like this legendary studio. He sets them up and hearing about the sessions for recording Some Great Reward are so crazy because he was running chords down multiple flights of stairs and into mm-hmm. other rooms and was recording the snare drum in one room and the bass mm-hmm. drum playing out of a keyboard in another room. And and so you get these big, booming sonic sounds. And when you listen to that album, like I said, they're not an industrial band by any stretch, but they have a very industrial sound to them. It's like a really beautiful production that they kept with them from that point on. I mean, they cleaned it up a little, yeah. but I think that's one of the brilliant parts of some great reward is that it just has such a cool sound to it. Their experimentation, too, really struck me. I guess I didn't realize prior to uh, reading up for this episode how much experimentation was happening at this time. And simultaneously, I'm reading Rick Rubin's book, and he talks so much about how important it is to experiment as an artist and be like willing to fail and try new things and keep going. And I really... I really thought about that a lot as I was researching this particular portion of our episode because they are, they're just trying new things. They're young. They, I don't know. I guess it's surprising too because there was a tremendous amount of pressure on them, but they still are making it a priority to experiment and try new things and to grow as artists because I think that sort of perhaps in, like without knowing they knew if they didn't, move forward they were going to become irrelevant so they continued to develop their sound and find their very unique Depeche Mode sound and they're not even really there yet they're kind of there yeah the other thing about this era that I think is important is up until this point they were really obsessed with being on the charts like they had to have a hit single they had to have a song (laughs) that would really be on the radio and it's at this point where I think they started to see themselves as true artists and have a vision and it became kind of second secondary. Mm-hmm. Of course, they want to sell albums. And of course, they want people to listen to their music. But they weren't obsessing with having the hit. No. They just wanted to write good music. And I think that that's what was starting to open their music up into more interesting avenues. And just also recognizing the strength within the band. And, and like you said, this is also Martin's singing debut is on this album. He sings uh, the most beautiful song. He always sings the most beautiful songs. He writes the songs from his heart are the ones that he sings, I feel. I mean, that's just truly what I've decided in my brain forever. But somebody, it's so beautiful. It's so simple and so earnest. And we actually learned that he recorded it in the nude. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that was an interesting thing. Alan said that it was a live take Mm -hmm. with just him and Martin in the studio uh, Alan on piano playing that beautiful part. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he said Martin being weird Martin because here's the it's thing we haven't weird. discussed at all is their personal lives. What I have learned in researching for this <laughs> podcast, mm-hmm. Martin is a weird freak. He was like into weird stuff. And oh, I knew that. When he was in Berlin, he was into all the clubs and the S&M and all that kind of stuff. And so he had a weird edge. And look at his little hats. I know. (laughs) Yeah, his little leather straps. Yeah. His girlfriend was German at the time. He was speaking fluent German. He was just totally about the lifestyle. He loved it. And Alan said, well, Martin being Martin said, I'm going to strip down. And then sure enough, he just took all his clothes off. So he said, I turned the piano around so I didn't have to look at him. Oh, <laughs> and then rude. just played. And that was all in, you know, they, they took that, that take together. And then the only other thing is they talked about the production of it. They did a multiple, they, three or four takes mm-hmm. so that they could blend the, the vocals in yeah. and out. And that's what gives it that really weird kind of fever dream quality as well as they had tape loops going around the whole time. Of like background noise. Yeah, background noise mm-hmm. in Berlin. So it was really interesting. And then uh, Fletch had also talked about this song being a turning point for the band because I had never seen this either. There was footage of Dave singing somebody. <gasps> oh, that was weird. Really? And it's just not his song to sing, nor no. is it in his range at all because he's got a really deep voice. And Fletch said this is when they realized that some songs are just meant for Martin Mm -hmm. and that they really are the more personal ones. 
Yeah. And so this was a big deal because from this point on, Martin is going to to always kind of keep a song for himself, at least one yeah. per album, if not two. The most emotional. Yeah. And I love that he got nude because this was, especially at this time, a very vulnerable song for him. They'd been writing very external music up until this point. And here he is bearing his heart. I mean, if, if you read the lyrics, they're very simple. But you know what? He's still in his early 20s. Exactly. Exactly. And it's beautiful. And I love that he just went with the feeling of being emotionally nude. I also <laughs> think it's funny. I love quirky mm-hmm. musicians. I love quirky everything. I think that's awesome. Yes. Like, do whatever you want to do. Whatever brings out the best performance, do it. It, it makes for a good story. So, yes. And we've talked about... Martin's special feelings, but they're also tapping into things like religion with blasphemous rumors, Mm -hmm. which was apparently a bit scandalous at the time, which is kind of surprising because it feels pretty vanilla at Well, think about um, Madonna is dealing with the same stuff for pretty straightforward lyrics. Yeah. It was just a very, this was the Reagan era. So yeah. Uh, globally, really, even though Reagan was in the U.S., it's still that it was very conservative times during during yeah. the early '80s. So we have their emotions, we have their religion, and of course, we've got to have the sex. <laughs> oh yeah, got to have some sex appeal. With and you touched on it. Uh, Martin was experimenting in Berlin <laughs> and uh, master and servant. This is great. The whole album feels very personal and very relatable. It still does to this day. You're like, I know where they were at in their lives and it makes sense. And I think it was this purple personal touch that really led them to be so successful with this album. You know, yeah. we had talked about how maybe they'd given up a little bit on making that a priority, but surprisingly, this album was uh, top 10 in a bunch of countries in Europe. And it was the first Depeche Mode album to even enter the U.S. charts. So that's pretty big for them. They toured in support of the album. They re- released the video, The World We Live In, and Live in Hamburg. Interestingly, uh, in the U.S., Depeche Mode was seen as a serious band. Oh, nice. So this is really important because in Europe, they were seen as heartthrobs. Not so much in Germany, but so many... Uh, had seen them growing up essentially over the last few years, turning from teenagers into young adults, you know, singing with yeah. chickens and <laughs> they weren't being taken seriously. Whereas in the U S they came as more of a fully formed band unless some lucky American had found them prior. Yeah. You know, they came in and they had their whole thing happening and they were kind of alternative and kind of edgy. So they were being taken much more seriously in the U.S. than they were in their own place. And I th- I think that's kind of like, you know how if you have a family and you have that weird cousin who becomes a doctor and they're really smart, they're really good, but you always know that they're the wor- weird cousin who ate boogers <laughs> in the corner or danced with a chicken or whatever. Yeah. And you can never take them fully seriously yeah. because you know their whole story. So in the, in the U.K., Everybody knows that they cuddled chickens in the U.S. <laughs> nobody does. So they, they have a new, more mature vibe as they're going. So U.S. didn't see their growing pains. Either way you slice it, the band was quickly becoming kings of the synth pop genre. And I think we should stop here. Yeah, this is hard to do because where they're about to go is... <laughs> really a landmark album in their career that is going to be a game changer. Uh, And we were originally going to include it at the end of this episode. And then we realized, no, no, it's too big. We'll start the next episode there. So this is up until 1984. Episode two, we will return with Depeche Mode basically conquering the 80s and then just dominating throughout the 90s. Can we do it in one more episode? We're going to have to, because my brain can't handle this much. Fair enough. And we will definitely sum up what they've done, you know, more recently, because unlike a lot of bands that have been around for 40 years, and I'm not just saying this because we're fans of their music, Depeche Mode got better and better and better, and their their music is so good that uh, 
for fans, it's a treat. Every Go time they put out an album, I'm not like, oh man, would they just call it a day already? I'm thrilled that they're putting out music still. So we do have a lot to talk about in episode two. I'm tired already thinking about the it's research. It's going to be intense. <laughs> uh, so this this is your episode one. We will come back in two weeks like normal with a follow-up to episode two. So in the meantime, you know what we're about to talk about next time. Do your research. Listen to some Depeche Mode albums. Listen to them all. You listen got to them all and get primed and ready for episode two. Thank you, everybody, for letting us kind of go down memory lane in a way, but also just really celebrate uh, more honestly and thoroughly uh, a band that's just been in, in the DNA of our relationship. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of fun to talk about. So we will be back in two weeks with episode two on Depeche Mode. Until then, if you want to listen to any of our back episodes, you can find us at lasergraves.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. You want to follow us on Instagram, we're at lasergraves. If you have friends who love Depeche Mode, tell them, oh man, my favorite podcast is covering Depeche Mode. <laughs> <laughs> and send them, send them our way. Sure. Anyway, we got no time to waste because we got a lot to tackle to get to the next episode. So gotta hit the books. Bye. Gotta hit the books, baby. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>